Last week, we started a series entitled Jesus, the Hope for All Humanity, and this week, we're going to finish that. We're going to finish that message. We're just, that was part one. Today's going to be part two. So in the beginning, I want to say this. Hope, the word hope, you know, it, it sounds like it almost means waiting for something, right? Like to say I hope something will happen almost necessitates that you're waiting for that thing to happen. Like if I say, I hope it doesn't rain or hope it stops raining, then I'm waiting for it to stop raining. Um, So hope is about waiting. And Christmas and Advent is all about waiting as well. And when I was a kid, Christmas for me was all about waiting for Santa Claus. You know what I'm talking about? We had an Advent calendar and all that, but I didn't know what it meant. All I knew is that we were getting closer to Christmas and Santa Claus was coming. So my waiting was all about Santa Claus and my hoping was all about the fact that I wanted the present. I wanted the Nintendo 64, you know, that's what I wanted. Um, So even as a kid, I knew that Christmas was about waiting and hoping. But what I didn't know is what I'm supposed to be waiting for and supposed to be hoping for. But now that I'm adult, I can tell you this. I don't like waiting for anything. Can I get an amen? I don't wait for anything, and I don't like waiting for anything, and I'm not the only one. I know a lot of adults who don't like waiting for anything. Come to think of it, I don't think I know any kids who like waiting for anything either. No one likes waiting. In fact, Henry Nouwen said, um, for many people, waiting is an awful desert between where they are and where they want to go. And people don't like such and such a place. They want to get out of it by doing something, he said. So I had this thought this week, if, if Christmas is all about w- hoping and hoping is all about waiting and waiting is no fun and no one likes it, then why does everyone like Christmas? <laughs> Maybe it's because we've gotten out of the waiting part by doing something. We go shopping, we mail out Christmas cards, we bake cookies, we invite people over for dinners and parties. We drink eggnog and hot chocolate. We sit by the fire. Christmas doesn't even start until we watch those films. We, we hang stockings with care. We put lights on our house. Some people start putting their lights on their house like in October. We, we do all these things and it kind of subtracts from us this thought of waiting and hoping for something. Now, don't get me wrong. I love all those things. I mean, for me, Christmas doesn't start until we watch National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation and until we watch Elf. Can I get an amen? (laughs) I have to have at least one cup of eggnog and we have to at least burn about seven fires in the fireplace, you know? We've got to get that thing going. And we've got to sit on the couch and eat cookies and drink hot chocolate with the kids. Christmas, I love those things. But honestly, none of those things feel like this hopeful expectation and waiting that I think Christmas and Advent is supposed to bring. (laughs) So tonight we're going to talk about hope and specifically about that kind of waiting. We're going to look at 1 Peter, and 1 Peter is sometimes called the epistle of hope. In fact, if you were to pick up a commentary, if you were to buy a commentary, chances are you would see the word hope either in the title or the subtitle of that commentary. The reason why is because Peter's writing to a church that's under a lot of persecution. They're being, um, uh, they're, they're being persecuted for their faith. And so Peter is saying, have hope because Jesus is coming soon. And so he tells these people, stand firm in your faith. Jesus is coming. Have hope. Do you believe that Jesus is coming? He said he was coming And that is, in many ways, what Advent is about, us hoping and waiting for his coming. You may not know this. I don't think I realized this until I was 32. So let me just tell you. Advent literally means arrival. 
So the Advent season, which is what we celebrate at Christmas, is about celebrating the arrival of Christ. We'll sing the songs, you know, like, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And when he came as a baby in Bethlehem, we sing with the choirs, for unto you is born this day in the city of David. He came and God's promises were met. Jesus came, he arrived. We celebrate that at Christmas. But we also put ourselves in a place of expectation and hope for the second coming of Christ because he promised us he's coming again and we're waiting and longing for his coming. So historically, Advent was really, and during Christmas time, was about fasting and praying and reflecting on the fact that Jesus is coming and we have this long expected hope. Oh, come along. You know, we just sang that song. We're waiting for him to come again. And, and I don't know about you, but I'll be honest with you about me. I'm not waiting for him to come. Now, maybe if my life was miserable, maybe I'd be like, come, get me out of here. I want to go to heaven. But honestly speaking, I'm like, not yet, Lord. I want to plant a few more churches. I want to see my little baby girl born. You know what I mean? I want to see my son grow up and get straight A's in college. You know, I, I, want, to, I want to experience these things. Before you come, I want to get a six-pack abs. You know, if I'm going to live with this body forever, I want to get it right. We need to, I think, shift our focus during this season to think, do we really long for Jesus' return? Is that something that you, th in fact, before we even bust into uh, 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 Peter, <laughs> before we bust into Peter, I thought maybe what we should do is have a discussion. Let's just jump right into discussion. Uh, if you're new here tonight, what we normally do is we just have a discussion around the table for about three minutes. You don't have to talk if you don't want to. Chances are someone at your table does, and they will probably talk the most. Um, so here's a couple questions I want you to think about during this discussion. Is Jesus's return something that you long and wait for? Like, the kind of waiting like a bride is waiting for her groom or like a kid is waiting for Christmas morning. And if not, well, why not? So there's three minutes. Discuss that question. Are you waiting for Jesus to come? And of course, there are people around the world who are experiencing way far worse than we are all the time. And they're probably waiting for it a lot more than we are. And then I guess the question becomes, how do we wait? I mean, we all know that we're not waiting for Jesus to come. So how do we force ourselves to start waiting for Jesus to come. You know what I mean? And I think Advent probably is somewhat that, where you, 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 it, it kind of forces you to maybe read these prayers and, and sing these songs and, and do a little fasting and focus on, I'm, I'm really hunger for Jesus's return. Um, but, but we often don't even do that because we get busy doing the stuff of Christmas um, and, and, and watching Elf instead of waiting for Jesus. So I want to look at First Peter today. Peter says, you guys are experiencing a lot of trial. And um, you need to have hope because Jesus is coming soon. Now, I can't tell you that Jesus is coming soon, but I can tell you that we're closer today than we've ever been to his return. Amen? Yes. Yeah, we are. See, I'm a prophet. <laughs> first Peter chapter one, we're going to look at the first 13 verses in chapter one. We're just going to kind of bounce around in there. Uh, chapter one um, says, according to his great mercy, Verse three, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And then if you jump down about 10 more verses in verse 13, he concludes that section by saying, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I love this. When Jesus comes you should know that you're going to be given grace because even if you're wearing that ugly shirt or even if you were thinking those ugly thoughts, even when he comes, you're going to be given grace. So tonight, what I want to do is similar to what we did last week and ask a few questions about hope. Um, what 
is the hope? What kind of hope is it? Um, what does it look like? What flavor is it, if you will? And then again, how does that particular flavor and kind of hope affect the way we live and specifically affect the way we're waiting for Jesus? Because the question I keep asking myself is, how do I force myself to wait for him, to long for him, to hunger for him when I'm really kind of comfortable and I really kind of want things here on earth? So I'm going give to go ahead and give you the answer to those three questions now in case you get bored and fall asleep, Okay. What kind of hope is it? It's the hope of grace. Peter's pretty clear about that. It's the hope of grace that will be revealed to you. What flavor or what kind of hope is it? And he gives us an adjective. It's a living hope. So we're going to talk about the word living, and we're going to talk about the word grace. And then we're going to take all of those at the end and say, now how should that affect the way that we're living? And I can't tell you what that answer is yet because we're going to discuss that in one of our discussion questions, and I want to see what you come up with, and I might change the sermon at, at that after listening to you, Okay. <laughs> Living hope of grace. So the first thing I want to talk about is grace. And, 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 and I just want to get a little preachy for a minute if I can. Don't you just love the word grace? Yeah. I particularly just, my phone number is actually add grace. 636-ADD-GRACE. Because I just love grace. And maybe it's because I'm acutely aware of my desperate need for it. Because <laughs> I know I'm a wretch. I know I'm a sinner, and I need grace. And even when I'm not a wretch and a sinner, I'm pretty wretchy, if you know what I'm saying. Poets have said it's the sweetest of sounds. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I love the word grace. If I hear a preacher preaching a sermon, and he uses the word grace, I just have this thing happening inside of here. It kind of sounds like this. Mm, you preach it, because I need some more of that grace. I need it. I love the sound of grace. Not only the sound of grace, but the reality of grace is even huger, ginormously, or if you know what I'm saying. It's, it's big. It's all over the Bible. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but if you read through Genesis to Revelation, that word is all over the place. God is constantly, constantly trying to show us and remind us and teach us it's grace. I'm giving you grace. I'm always going to give you grace. It's all about grace. For instance, Ephesians 2, 4, probably everyone's favorite verse. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And this verse goes on and he repeats that again. It's by grace through faith alone that we've been saved, not of any works of your own. It's all on him. He's the one giving it to you. I can't tell you enough. I love grace. I need it. And, and there's all kinds of stories in the Old Testament too. Sometimes we get wrapped up thinking God's judgmental and mean in the Old Testament. He's loving and grace in the New Testament. That's not necessarily true. The Old Testament is replete with stories of God's grace. Peter even brings up some of those stories. If you read the whole book of Peter, he brings up Noah. He says, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight persons, that's a small church, were brought safely through the water. So God says, look, I'm going to destroy the earth. I really don't want to, but I've got to. And I'm going to still provide a means of grace. I'm going to have Noah build a boat and I'm going to patiently wait for him to build it. How long did it take Noah to build that boat? I don't know. <laughs> um, it took him a long time. And then when it was built, all he said is, if you want to be saved, all you got to do is get on the boat. I'm giving you grace. Everyone out there, just get on the boat. And then Peter likens that to baptism. You were saved through the water. It's a pretty amazing chapter if you want to read that, Peter 3. I could tell you about the man named Methuselah. Methuselah is a living illustration of the grace 
of God. And when I say living, that's kind of an understatement because everyone knows that Methuselah was the oldest man ever to live. Anyone know how old he was when he died? 969. 969. Good job. Man, you're smart. 969 years. <laughs> what some people probably don't know is what his tra the transliteration of his Hebrew word means. It literally means his death shall bring, or even more literally, when he is dead, it shall be sent. So God is saying, I'm going to destroy the earth with a flood, but I'm not going to do it until Methuselah dies. And when Methuselah dies, the flood will be sent. And just so happens, who was the oldest man to ever live? Methuselah. So it's like God saying, I'm judging the earth, but I'm going to tarry and tarry and tarry and wait and wait so that more people will come, more people will repent, more people will hear the gospel, more people will be preached righteousness and be saved. In fact, the tradition goes, in Hebrew tradition, that Methuselah died at 969, and then seven days later, after the seven days of mourning in the Jewish custom, the flood began on that day. Isn't that interesting? God is waiting and waiting and waiting, and then he still waited seven more days, and then he brought the flood. I'm tempted to tell you the story of Jonah. In the story of Jonah, God's using Jonah to deliver grace to a wicked city called Nineveh. And, and listen to Jonah's very words. He says this in the Old Testament about God. He says, for I knew that you are a gracious God and you are merciful. You are slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. It's actually not a very good verse because the next thing he says, and that's why I didn't want to go to Nineveh. Because <laughs> I knew if I did, you would save them. And I don't like them. In fact, just if I could give a plug. We're going to start a new series in January entitled The Depths of Grace, and it's going to be through the book of Jonah. And, and my hope through this series is that we're not going to focus on the fish. We're going to focus on the depths of grace because in every single chapter, you see this depths of grace that God is bestowing, not only on Nineveh, but also on wicked Jonah. I mean, Jonah needs a lot of grace through this situation as well, and he's a lot like us, to be honest. And so we're going to talk about that. That's just a free plug I just wanted to put in right there. So grace is amazing. Can I get an amen? We need it. And God is, I'm so glad that God is full of it. And he's, and he's compassionate and he's long-suffering and he's waiting for us to get it together. And if you're anything like me, that's good. Because it takes a long time for me to realize. I mean, how many times do I got to get hit in the head before I realize, oh yeah, don't say that. You know what I mean? Okay, the second thing that I want to talk about is the living hope. It's this hope of grace that we will receive. And, and Peter said, when he returns, we're not going to shrink back in fear. We're going to expect this hope of grace. He's going to bring us in because we believe in Jesus. Now, what does it look like? What's the flavor of it? And the flavor is, it's a living hope. According to his great mercy or grace, he has caused us to be, I like the way Peter says this, born again to a living hope. So we've been born. We died, we rose, born again as a new life to this new thing called a living hope. It's an acting hope. The word living is, here I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get English on you. It's a present active participle. So what that means is it's a participle, it ends in I-N-G, which means it's an it's action verb. Present means it's today, it's happening today. And tomorrow becomes the new today, right? So tomorrow you're looking at today. And then the next tomorrow you're looking at the next today. So it's always today. It's always present. It's always happening now. And active, you can probably guess what this means, right? It means it's an action. 
It's actively working. So we've got this living hope that's presently acting in our lives today. It's alive, another way of saying it. It's lively. We've got a living, a lively, and active hope. If I could say what I think this means. It doesn't just mean we had hope that Jesus would come and he came and he gave us the gospel and now we're safe. That's kind of a passive hope. You know what I mean? And, and we don't just have this hope where Jesus is coming back and when he does, we're all going to heaven. And that's sort of kind of a future hope. It's a present, something active, alive inside of you hope today. As if the gospel is acting in your life today. As if grace is doing something every day, actively. Another way that I think about it is it's kind of like a virus. A virus is alive. And when it gets inside you, I thought, maybe he thought that was funny. I was like, that is kind of funny, isn't it? <laughs> It gets inside of you and it's alive and it's moving and you can't control it and it's contagious and it spreads. So this hope that we have is alive like a virus and it spreads from us to others. Be born again to a living hope. He also goes on to say in that verse, verse three, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So another way of looking at this living hope, but this is interesting to me, is that it's through the resurrection of Jesus, of Jesus Christ, from the dead, which means Jesus rose from the dead. So Jesus is alive. And therefore our hope is alive. We don't have a dead hope. We have a living hope. We have a alive hope. Jesus isn't dead. Jesus is alive. And we have a hope because he's alive and he's present today. He's active today. And that's the kind of hope that we have. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is alive and he's present right here today? That gives you a different kind of hope. Watch how Peter plays this out. He goes on to say this in verse 8. Though you've not seen him, I really like this verse a lot. Though you have not seen him, because I haven't seen him. Anyone in here seen him? Except for on your toast, maybe? No, we have not seen him, right? (laughs) Though you haven't seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, like right now, presently, actively, you believe in him. Okay, so, so Jesus is alive. We've been born again into his living hope. And even though you haven't seen him, and even though you don't now see him, you love him and you believe in him. He's real. He's alive. He's active in your life now. If you've got that mindset, you've got all kinds of hope, right? What was I going to say next? Someone tell me. Though you have not seen him, you love him, though you... Oh, yeah, the word love, this is fascinating to me, is the word agapo, right? You knew that probably because we're Christians and the word love is always agapo. But it isn't always agapo. It's celebrated in Christian community. We have agapo festivals, agape conferences. But, but most of the time when we see the word agapo in Scripture, it's from God to us. For God so loved the world, right? He gapos us. And it's a very passionate kind of a love, a deep kind of a love kind of love that you almost think only God can have. But Peter flips it here because we really know that Jesus is really alive, not fake alive, but real alive. And we really believe in him, even though we don't see him, we agapo him. We have this deep, intimate love for him, almost like I would love my wife, almost like I would love my children, but even more. In fact, one commentator said this, the context here suggests a deep sense of personal affection for the one whom they've never met in person, but whose presence in a spiritual sense is beyond question. This is why I'm a Christian, by the way. 
I'll be honest with you, some days I doubt. Some days I have struggles. Some days I'm wondering, is all of this a game? Some days people say things to me that I'm like, whoa, you got a good point there. <laughs> but then I remember, no, he's alive. I know him and I do love him. He's real. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt in a spiritual sense that Jesus is real. He's alive and he's active in my life. Amen. Amen. My prayer for myself and for this church, and this should be your prayer for yourself and for me, is that we would love Jesus more. I mean, I just want to love Jesus with this agape more. Love, you know? I want to know that he's there, feel his presence, and just be infatuated and affected by my love for him and his love for me. So that's the kind of love that we have. That's the kind of hope that we have. We have a hope of grace, which is amazing, but it's also the flavor of it is rooted in this active, living love that we have for Jesus, that we know he's with us. He's here today. That's pretty big stuff, I think. We could, I could ramble more, but I'm not going to. Let's just talk about it. I want to ask another question. Last week, I shared some of these quotes with you. Hope is this thing we talked about last week. It's this thing that's inside your gut. It's like a fire that burns, and it gets you to do things. It moves you into action. If you have hope, it moves you into action. The Wright brothers hoped they could fly, so they built the airplane. You know, you, you, I hoped to marry Kelly, so I took an extra job so I could buy a ring. There's this, this hope moves you into action. Martin Luther King Jr. said, everything that's done in the world is done in hope. We have this hope. We want to see it come, come, to, come to fruition. Um, Timothy Keller said, we are hope-based creatures. What we believe or what we hope for will affect the way we live. If we don't have hope, we won't have life. Another quote from a scholar said, in the Bible, hope is never a static or a passive thing. It's always dynamic. It's active. It's directive. It's life-sustaining. If our hope is a biblical hope and it's based on God's promises who cannot lie, it will put us into gear. Okay, so these are some of the quotes I shared last week. Okay, if that's the kind of hope we have, and it's the hope of this amazing grace that we will receive when he returns, and it's presently active, loving in Christ now, the next question I want to ask is, how will that put us into gear? How will that change the way we live? How will that change and affect the way we are now? The question I want to ask, I want to change it a little bit, because we asked that question last week already. I don't want it the same answers from last week. Instead, I want to ask this one. Since we've been given amazing grace, and since we have this living, active love for Christ, how should this affect our waiting? In other words, we're still wrestling here. How do we wait for Jesus' return? I want Jesus to come back, but not really, but sometimes. How does this now, this amazing grace that we have, this active, present, participle of love and hope in our lives for Christ, how does that affect the way we're going to wait for him now? I think it's difficult. We would try to muster up this feeling of waiting. And then I, I even heard one person say uh, a few months ago, well, why should I wait for, want him to come back when there's so much problems in the world? Maybe we shouldn't want him to tarry longer so we have more time to save those people who need to be saved. Because if 70% if, if of people in our community don't go to church on a given weekend, which means they're not Christians, why on earth would we want him to come back today? We want him to, want him to tarry a little bit. Um, I have one friend who's just obsessed with this whole Mayan thing. And, and, and so he, you know, the Mayans are coming back, right? Or whatever. Jesus is coming. I don't know. Something, I don't know what's going to happen. 
But it's the end of the world as we know it. And, and just this week, I think Eric was saying on, the, on Friday. So, and he's so obsessed and he's talking about the sun and the moon and the stars and he's reading Isaiah and Jeremiah. And I'm saying, okay, so how would that, if it's true, I mean, if you really believe that to be true, Jesus is coming back on the 21st, how would that change the way we live? I mean, should it make me want to share the gospel with more people? It should, but it doesn't. Maybe because I don't really believe in the Mayans. I don't know. But it should. So kind of where I want to go next is I want to go miss your day on you, all right? If we have this hope of grace, woo, and it's an active living hope, awesome. How does that affect the way we're waiting for Christ? And I believe that if we were actively waiting for Jesus, we would be waiting, as you said, and as, as you said over here, we'd be preparing for his arrival. And the way we would prepare is not necessarily to clean our house, but, but, to, but to get people saved, to share the gospel. So this hope of grace that we talked about before, God has all this grace. It's clear from scripture that he is extending it to the whole world. And he wants the whole world to have this grace. Now, at Christmas time, we sing a lot of Christmas songs, and you hear a lot of verses. And to be honest with you, most of those verses come from one book in the Bible called Isaiah. I love that book, Isaiah. One day I'd like to do a series on Isaiah, but it would take four years to get through it. I've started a series on it, and it's taken me four years to get through the, the chapter six. But here's, <clears throat> here's, here's some of those verses that we see over the holidays. From Isaiah, for unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given. Um, the Lord will give you a sign, and the virgin will be with child, and will give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Isaiah 9, it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Uh, Isaiah 60 says, arise, shine, for thy light has come, right? And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. I, I personally can't listen or read any of these verses without thinking of some Christmas carol or at least Handel's Messiah is always ringing in my ears as I'm reading these verses. All these verses come from Isaiah. We're hoping and waiting and longing for Jesus to come. If I could, I, I just want to do a mini series on the, on the book of Isaiah real fast. Um, if I give you just a brief synopsis, the, the book of Isaiah is 66 chapters long, which is parallel to the 66 books of the Bible. In fact, some commentators call it the Bible in miniature. So you've got 66 chapters in Isaiah. The first, what is it, 39 chapters parallel to the first 39 of the Bible. And it's all really about God's judgment on Israel because they're not trusting him and they're running from him. God had made them to be his chosen race, his chosen people, a city on a hill, a light unto the nations. They're supposed to be the leader of the world. But instead of leading, they're following after idols. They're following after Babylon and Assyria. And so God is frustrated with them and mad at them. The last 27 chapters parallel, of course, with the last 27 books of the Bible. And it's all about God's new covenant, God's new plan for God's people who now are going to be on mission, the mission that he always gave them, which was to be the light and to the nations. And of course, what's spattered throughout the book of Isaiah, as it is also spattered all throughout the Bible, is that Jesus is coming. And when Jesus comes, when this son comes, when this suffering servant comes, it's going to purify wicked Israel, wicked chosen people of God, in order for them to be back on mission. I, it's, in fact, if I could go even further, the story in Isaiah 6 
where Isaiah sees the Lord high and exalted and lofty and he gets his lips burned with the coal is is exact parallel of that thing. He comes to God. I'm a wicked servant. I'm good as dead. He says, I'm going to purify you. And what am I going to purify? Your lips. Now go tell. And so that is basically the outline of the whole book of Isaiah, which I would also say is the outline of the whole Bible. You see, when Jesus came on Christmas morning, it wasn't the end of the story. It was really the beginning of the second chapter or the second book. So God wants his chosen people to be a light unto the nations. God is on a mission, and his mission is to extend grace to the entire earth. He's frustrated because they weren't doing it. They, they, they're not doing it. So he says, I'm going I'm to send my son. I'm going to send my servant to purify you, to, to show you by example. And then I'm going to send you back out. Now that you've got the spirit, now that, now that I can say, lo, I am with you always, Go. And so we're on the mission of God. So if we're really waiting for Jesus to come back, I think what that looks like is being on the mission of God. I want to share just about 124 verses for you um, about about Jesus' mission. The first one is this. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. How many people? All people. He wants everyone to be saved. Um, Number 78. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. How how far does he want this salvation to go? The ends of the earth. Luke 2. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for who? All people. Matthew 24. I love this verse. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, comma, and then the Mayans will come back, right? And that, that's not going to happen until we, 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 we proclaim. Acts 13, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light. This is an Isaiah passage he's quoting. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So God's program, God's mission, God's plan has always been to extend grace to the ends of the earth. And it almost seems like a suggestion that he's not coming back until it happens. So he may not come back for another 2,000 years. And that might be why it's hard for us to wait for him to come back, because we don't know if he's coming back in our lifetime. So it's easier for me to focus on my television sets and my my iPods and my cardigans, right? (laughs) I want him to come back, but he's not going to, so I might as well focus on things that I can have. And if Jesus tarries for another 2,000 years, honestly speaking, I almost see that kind of like Methuselah where he's saying, I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. Do you think he wants to come back? Do you think he wants to bring us home? He wants to bring us home. He says, I've gone to prepare a place to you. If it wasn't so, I wouldn't have told you. I want to bring you there. He's been preparing for us. He's been waiting for us. But he's tarrying like Methuselah so that grace can be extended to all the earth. I got time. I'm going to share one more story. Um, So the first advent of Jesus was about him coming and us receiving the promise that Jesus, the Savior, would come and give us grace so that we can have salvation. And that's blessed. That's great. But the second advent is really about our responsibility to prepare this place, this earth, for his second coming so that he can bring more home with him. Do you believe that? I believe that. I believe that's the mission of God. That's why we call this church the Missio Dei. And so if the first one is a blessing and the second one is a responsibility, I am scared to death of that responsibility, to be honest with you. And particularly the reason why I'm so frightened of it is because of this little parable that Jesus tells in Matthew. 
I want to read it for you if I can pull it up quick enough. Um, it's a terrifying parable, to tell you the truth. Man, it's going to give you a lot of hope, I think. Uh, yeah. All right. <clears throat> Jesus says, you have a responsibility to wait for me in a specific way, and that waiting involves light. You're the city on the hill. You're the light to the nations, and I want you to shine your light. It's found in Matthew 25. I'm just going to read it for you. Jesus says this, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Amen. <laughs> the bridegroom has been delayed, and we're all drowsy. <laughs> but at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. Then all those virgins rose and they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish ones said to the wise ones, hey, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise ones answered, hey, since there will not be enough for us and for you, you should go into town and buy some for yourselves. And so while they were gone to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, I don't know you. Then Jesus says, watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And I'll tell you, this is a terrifying parable. And I don't know what it means. And I don't want to unpack it tonight because it would not give us hope, I don't think. But I do know that Peter says, wait for the hope that will be revealed to you when Jesus returns. So I know that when he comes, we're going to receive grace. The, the, wait for the hope of grace that will be revealed to you when Jesus returns. I know we're going to receive grace. So I don't know how to unpack this verse at the moment. I haven't prepared for that. But I do know is that there's a certain way that we wait for him, and it's with these lamps. What's the deal with these lamps? You know? And I don't think it's an accident that they're lamps and that there's oil that burns inside of them to shine and that we have to be a light Jesus says, you don't take a candle and put it under a bushel. You put it on a hill. We're the light unto the nations. That's our destiny. That's our calling. And so when we're waiting and when we're preparing, we're sharing the gospel. We're sharing this grace that God wants to extend to the world. And if we don't, we look a lot like Jonah who says, I'm not going to share it. That's what I think waiting should look like. If you ask me, how would that change the way you wait? I would say, I probably should be caring more about opportunities to share the grace that I've received and share this living hope that I have with people, so many people in our world who do not have grace and who do not have hope. This week I was asked to do a funeral for a friend of a friend and, um, and it was in uh, Afton and then the funeral director <laughs> asked me if I wanted to get in the car with him, the Hearst, that's weird, and drive with him to Jefferson's Barracks to shoot the guns. And um, I said, sure. So I thought okay, Lord, why am I sitting in this car with this guy for like an hour drive and back? I'm going to ask him a bunch of questions. That's what I'm going to do. And I started talking to him and I started picking his brain. And I said, so does this job, you know, like make you closer to God or farther from God? You see all this death, you see all these people. And he answered me some questions and I asked him, what is the one thing that just disturbed you the most? What have you learned the most? He said, we live in a dark world. He said, it used to be when I did this 40 years ago, someone would lose somebody, they would lose a life, and I'd come to them and I'd say, who's your minister? And they'd give me a name. Nowadays, 
like 80% of them, we don't go to church. We don't have a minister. We don't want a minister. Why don't you all just say something? Can you imagine the hopelessness of a situation like that? You're just experiencing the loss of a loved one, and you have no one to give you hopeful words. And you don't even know that they're there because you don't even want them. Hey, won't you just say something? Would that cost any extra? And he said, people are just different today, even from the past 30 years than they were 30 years ago. There's no God. I mean, God is absent from our world. And I started sharing with him about church planting and the 70% thing and that there's you know, 70% of people in St. Louis don't go to church on a given weekend and don't <laughs> call themselves a Christian. And we do have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do. And, and I wonder if Jesus is saying, you guys aren't waiting for me to return at all. And if you are, you're not helping <laughs> the situation. My hope and my prayer this Christmas is that we would be waiting like that. And maybe it means we focus on fasting or we focus on praying and, and saying, God, I, I don't hunger for you and I need to hunger for you. And God, I, I'm not presently actively engaged in this hope and I need that. And, 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 and as a benediction, I would just like to say this. May this Christmas, may Christ bless you this Christmas with this hopeful experience of shining his light into at least one of the dark places, right? We've got lots of them around us that so saturate our world. And may you be alert and anxious for the second advent of Christ. May that be true for all of us. Now, at this time, I would just like to pray. And then um, Dan's gonna lead us in a few more songs. And, and as usual, we have the communion table here. And my challenge to, to, to you would be just come forward, take a piece of bread, dip it in.